Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. How does a city of over 20 million affect the wildlife and more precisely wild birds? Dr. Thomas Lovejoy, known as the godfather of biodiversity, once said, if you take care of birds, you take care of most of the environmental problems in the world. How do birds fare in and around the Chinese capital? Is their population dwindling or increasing? Is Beijing a more friendly city for birds? One Brit was so fascinated by these questions that he has dedicated the past 12 years to his feathered friends. He has also set up a website to share his stories in the wild and on the fly in China. I'm feeling chirpy today as I'm joined by British conservationist Terry Townsend, fellow of the Chicago-based think tank Paulson Institute and founder of the website Birding Beijing. Mr. Townsend, welcome to The Point. So first of all, what triggered your interest in focusing on wild bird watching in Beijing? When I first came to Beijing for work and people found out that I like to watch birds, the most common reaction was a sort of look of shock and bewilderment. You know, why, why are you in Beijing? You know, there are no birds in Beijing. And this is what lots of people uh, told me. Um, but of course, very quickly, I realized that wasn't the case and uh, started to explore and realized that actually Beijing is a really good place for birds. And that's primarily because of its location on a big migratory flyway. We call it East Asia Australasian flyway. Um, and in fact, more than 500 species have been recorded in Beijing, which ranks Beijing number two in terms of G20 capital cities, uh, in terms of number of species recorded. So, so Beijing is a great place for, for watching birds. Um, and it's primarily, it's just like real estate. It's, it's all due to the location, location, location. So we're, we're right slap bang in the middle of this big bird expressway uh, where twice okay. a year birds are migrating north and south um, and, and pass through Beijing. Mm -hmm. So what's the state of affairs concerning the the birds, the especially wild bird situation in Beijing? Because Beijing, with over 20 million population, is one of the busiest and biggest capital with one of the highest populations. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it's it's sort of um, sometimes I think um, unexpected to hear that, that Beijing is, is a good place for birds. So in the last few years, there's been a real explosion in the number of people interested in birds. And so we're getting a lot more records sent to database, citizen science databases of different species and, and different uh, in different places. And so we're getting an explosion in the number of records, which is fantastic. Um, but we don't really have anything to compare that with, you know, like 10, 20 years ago. Um, mm. So it's very difficult to say which species are increasing, which species are decreasing, uh, and so on. But it's hard to give you a definitive answer. <laughs> I see, I understand. Um, still, I was going to ask you, how do things compare um, with 10 years ago when you first started bird watching in Beijing? Uh, I, I know, as you said, you know, there is no authoritative and comprehensive data to do a scientific comparison. But just from your personal yeah. Uh, experience, what would you say is the biggest change that you noticed um, without, you know, having this kind of comprehensive data analytics? Yeah, so cer certainly so there's been some big changes. I would say the first thing I would I would uh, emphasize is the 
incredible uh, awareness uh, that's been raised over the last 10 years. So I think there are far more people today who care about the environment, who are interested in, in birds and nature more broadly than, than 10 years ago. So I think there has been a sort of environmental awakening, as I uh, describe it, among mm -hmm. the population. Um, and also there have been big improvements in terms of air quality. Obviously, I think most people... Um, you know, realised that 10 years ago, you know, there was a, a quite a serious uh, air pollution issue in, in Beijing and right. some other cities. But, you know, now, of course, it's much, much better. Um, and also water quality has improved a lot. So the local river uh, in Shunyi is um, the Wenyu River, which sort of runs along the boundary of Shunyi and Chaoyang. And when I used to visit there, um, you know, I used to have to hold my nose because it was pretty smelly. The water quality was pretty bad. But now it's it's really clear, you know, and there are, there's been a huge increase in the numbers of fish eating water birds. So herons, egrets, cormorants, um, you know, there are far more seen on this river now, you know, which I think speaks volumes in terms of the, the, the quality of the, of the water. So I think certainly there have been some improvements in the environment over the last 10 years. But the biggest thing I would say is the awareness. You captured what you saw the other day, I, I think on the 12th of November this year, concerning a kind of bird that's called uh, Palace's Sand Grouse. Uh, and you wrote about that, you tweeted about that, you even called it one of your best ever birding experiences. What was the story? Yeah, yeah that particular day, a couple of weekends ago, you know, I just heard that a couple of people had seen one or two of these sand grouse. Um, in different parts of, of Beijing. And I thought, well, maybe this is a moment when there's going to be an eruption. So I just walked to a, a patch of ground close to where I live that is quite typical of the habitat they like. So I thought if there's any around, maybe there'll be some there. Um, and I very quickly realised there weren't any. Uh, but then suddenly a flock of birds flew over my head. I heard the whirring of wings looked up and there was a flock of sangrouse and I've seen very small scale eruptions before of just you know a few individuals um, but this was the first large scale uh, eruption yeah that I've ever seen of this species and as far as I know um, it's at least seven times the high highest uh, number was at least seven times the previous highest count in Beijing so it, it was a particularly impressive moment and it just happened on one day one afternoon the next day they were nearly all gone you're also said to be involved in projects to help save some of china's most endangered birds from extinction uh, could you share with us uh, one example of uh, you know efforts yeah sure so there's um there's a a, a duck actually a diving duck called the the chintou chanya the uh, bear's pochard and this this bird a few decades ago, it was pretty abundant, actually, in, in East Asia, um, but it's undergone a, a really serious decline. And we don't fully understand why that's happened. But the number, the official numbers now are around a thousand individuals or, or maybe uh, a little bit higher, um, but really small numbers in terms of a whole species. And there's a lake in uh, Hong Shui Hu in, in Hebei province, about 300 kilometers south of Beijing, uh, where some were found um, breeding. And um, so there was a huge effort went into uh, try to protect these birds and to protect the habitat that they need because they they have a particular preference for fresh water. It's quite still um, and with a lot of vegetation. And so there was a huge effort that went in from 
Chinese universities, um, NGOs, working with the Hongshui uh, local government um, and bringing in international expertise uh, from, from different areas who worked on similar species before. Um, and yeah, then there's been a huge um, turnaround. So now that lake is is very well protected. Previously, there was a lot of poaching and you know illegal fishing and quite a lot of activity there. Um, right. Now it's, it's been completely turned around and, and the ducks are doing very well there. Yeah, it's also said that you've been involved in an innovative community-based program which tracks many of Beijing's iconic birds. Um, this community-based program, is that the kind of effort that you just mentioned? How does it work and how is it working? Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the things that drives me in everything I do is is to try to build more awareness about uh, biodiversity and nature. Um, so that there's a very famous quote from a, a Senegalese conservationist who said that in the end, everyone wants to protect what they love, but you can only love what you know. And so if you don't know what you have around you, you know, you don't fall in love with it. And if you don't fall in love with it, you don't want to protect it. So I think one of the keys to uh, fixing the biodiversity crisis is to make more people aware of what they have around them. You know, we recently tracked the Beijing Swift, the Beijing UEN from the Summer Palace, and we found out it goes all the way to South Africa for the northern winter before returning mm -hmm. to Beijing. You know, and, and even more incredibly, they do that journey without landing at all. So they, they eat wow. in the air, they drink in the air and they sleep in the air. And so this is an incredible story, you know, about one bird in Beijing. And we've seen how that can inspire people to make changes um, to the way that we live and the way we make buildings the way, and the way we make the cities uh, friendly yeah. for, for wildlife. So we've seen schools now putting up special boxes for Swift. We've seen building companies commit to uh, making their new buildings more friendly for Swifts. So when they when they hear these stories, they're really inspired and that can make people do incredible things. What still remains the biggest challenge for wildlife conservation, especially wild bird uh, protection in China? What is your gauge of the current efforts ongoing? Well, I think what's uh, so important with bird conservation, because most birds are migratory. Um, and so what we're seeing now in, in, in China is, is some big uh, changes in terms of uh, taking responsibility for sort of China's role in the flyway. So just one example is the, the coastal wetlands on the Yellow Sea. So uh, the Bohai Bay and the Yellow Sea are vital uh, for migratory shorebirds that migrate, breed up in the Arctic Circle and spend the winter as far away as Australia, New Zealand. And the Yellow Sea mudflats, the intertidal mudflats are like a big five-star service station for these birds. You know, it's where they can find lots of great food. They rest um, for, before they continue these journeys. And we've lost quite a lot of those wetlands over the last few decades to development. So re reclaiming land close to the, to the sea. But um, in 2019, the, the state council issued a, a ban on further uh, coastal wetland reclamation. And they nominated the most important sites to become World Heritage Sites, which, of course, means that they are very strongly protected um, and sustainably managed. And so we're now seeing a complete turnaround in policy and we're seeing some of those sites becoming you know, being restored and protected and celebrated you know, for what this for what they are, which is that you know, these incredible natural 
natural heritage. We are going to have the COP15 uh, on biodiversity in Canada. What does your experience tell us about the kind of efforts needed to protect biodiversity? Yeah, absolutely. So COP15 part two coming up in Montreal, which is under China's presidency, of course, you know, for me, it's the most important environmental meeting we've ever had because it's the place where we're due to have agreement on a new global biodiversity framework looking forward um, over the next 10 years. And this is vital because our biodiversity is in crisis. You know, the populations of vertebrates in um, globally have fallen by about 69% just since 1970. You know, 90% of the large fish have disappeared in the ocean. The extinction rate is thought to be a thousand times the natural rate. Uh, 96% of the biomass of all the mammals on Earth today are humans or the livestock on which we depend. So we're in a pretty uh, drastic situation and we really need to find a way forward that's going to slow and stop uh, that biodiversity loss. So I think this meeting coming up um, in, in Montreal is, is really, really important. And I think one of the key things we have to do is find a way to value nature in our economies. So at the moment, we don't really put a value on our natural capital, uh, and therefore we don't penalise those people who destroy it, and we don't reward those people who protect and restore it. And so we have to find a way of integrating nature into our economies. Uh, you know, and that's vital because in the end, end of the day, humans evolved in and are dependent on nature. So what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Terry Townsend uh, sharing with us your birding experience in Beijing. I hope we have more bird chips in the morning waking us up to a good day. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. That was my interview with British conservationist Terry Townsend. After the break, a report shows how the United States has penetrated and influenced certain sectors of the South African media. I spoke to the authors of the report. Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. According to a report published in August, the United States has been penetrating South African media through the National Endowment for Democracy and other organizations and foundations. The report said the project was an example of U.S. state-sponsored efforts to influence public opinion abroad in ways favorable to its own selfish interests. How long have such operations been going on and how big has the influence been? Earlier, I talked to the authors of the report, Ajit Singh, journalist and member of the international campaign No Code War, and Roscoe Palm, director of Pan-African Institute for Socialism. Mr. Singlet, the report that you published is uh, entitled How the United States Has Penetrated South African Media, in which you detail how the U.S. state with its private sector partners have captured and continue to capture influential South African media. You called this a U.S. imperial project. Who exactly are the main players here and what's their hidden agenda? That's a great question. Uh, the main player uh, at the heart of the United States international influence operations is an organization called the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, this was an organization created in 1983 under the Reagan administration. And in the words of its founders, it was created to take over the public face of the U.S. Um, influence operations around the world 
from the CIA to do openly what the CIA used to do covertly. And this is because uh, during the 60s and 70s, the reputation of the CIA and these its covert operations became tarnished. And so the NED uh, on a yearly basis issues thousands of grants in over 100 countries around the world. Uh, between 2010 and 2020, this past decade, it's issued over a billion dollars in grants. And um, a lot of these grants go to uh, media organizations, a range of civil society organizations. But what we focused on were its funding towards media organizations, particularly in South Africa, where it has been financing since 2020 one of the major South African newspapers, Mail and Guardian, uh, and has increasingly been working with private foundations, namely uh, Luminate, which is a private foundation headed by Pierre Omidyar, who founded The Intercept investigative journalism website, and Open Society Foundations, which is headed by George Soros. And so this sort of private partnership is increasingly uh, playing a role in media development, uh, particularly in the global south. Hmm. Roscoe, um, you claim in that report that this is a project in hidden, in plain sight. What do you mean? And what's the pattern of operation and scope in influencing public opinion? Well, um, the NED's operation um, is vast, and as Ajita said, it's been in operation since 1983. For example, it, it, uh, in South Africa, it has um, funded many of the major publications as, as well as smaller projects. Uh, we have found at least 24 publications that have been funded by one or more of the major funders that regularly partner with the U.S. government. And this is a massive footprint in terms of influencing. Its uh, role is to increase the U.S. soft power in South Africa and beyond into Africa. For example, it has funded um, the local chapter of the Media Institute of Southern African Swaziland, the Institute of the Advance of Journalism in South Africa, and many other institutes. The goal of this is to elevate a pro-U.S. and a pro-Western narrative that often comes at the cost of African narratives and African, the African agenda for development. There's a myriad of organizations ostensibly for journalism training or for media development cooperation, some at a global scale, some at a national level, regional level. And uh, uh, Roscoe, both of you call it an alphabet soup of acronyms. What function do these so-called media organizations serve? Well, as I said, they, they serve to push a narrative and then also to place people in key positions that sit on um, various within this influencing network. We found that there is, in fact, a revolving door of people who work for organizations that are funded by NED and other organizations within this influence in network of influence and U.S. State Department organizations. So uh, at the time of writing the piece, we said that there were two people, two um, uh, editors who went on to work, uh, former editors in chief of the Mail and Guardian who've gone to work for Western um, government supported organizations. We've since found two more and at least 15 people who passed through the fellowship program run by Amon Bungani, the investigative journalist unit, have been directly tied to U.S. government organizations and programs. 
it's building an influence network. It's building people that they can then place in institutions uh, around the world to then cultivate further influence and to curate the narratives, mm-hmm. in, especially in this particular moment in history when the West and the U.S. is just decoupling from the rest of the world. So the main question here, Ajit, uh, is uh, how long, as you mentioned, the uh, NED was founded in 1983, so the operation has been ongoing for a long time, but how long specifically have the operations been going on in South Africa, to your knowledge, to your investigation? I'm uh, directing this question to Ajit. And how powerful has the project proven to be in shaping local public opinion? Well, we uncovered that South Africa, uh, shortly after the NED was founded in 1983, in its first and second year of, of operation, uh, it was active in financing media in South Africa. At the time, in their own words, according to U.S. internal documents, they sought to, quote, counter strong Marxist campaigns in South Africa. It's important to note that this is South Africa at the time of apartheid. And the United States wasn't primarily interested in funding and financing media to promote an anti-apartheid message, but they were interested in promoting an anti-Marxist message. This is at the time of the Cold War. And uh, it's illustrative of how the United States, the criteria for what it finances isn't, uh, unfortunately, necessarily human rights and democracy, but it's geopolitical interests. And today, it appears that it's ratcheting up and returning to these sort of Cold War tactics as global tensions rise with China and Russia to be able to promote certain narratives and shape public opinion. I think we're not yet able to say what impact it's going to have. It's unfolding at the moment, mm. and it's it's going to continue to unfold as evidenced by the billions of dollars they're putting into their international media initiatives, as I outlined uh, previously. Mm-hmm. Um, Roscoe, Now, for the ordinary people who are watching the news, who are reading the newspapers, what could they do? I mean, what are, for instance, some of the common characteristics among these media that have been captured? And how could ordinary consumers tell whether they're being fed uh, with a secret agenda? You know, here we have to rely on um, the common sense and uh, the intuition of ordinary people who read the media. And um, th- what we need to do actually is to build some, uh, is, is to counter the propaganda with facts. For example, one of the uh, one of the constant themes in these publications is the demonization of state actors that um, uh, don't necessarily fit into the U.S. and uh, the global North's idea of hegemony. So one of the things we constantly hear about in Africa is that uh, China. Um, in is uh, it involves in debt trapping um, certain states in Africa, when in fact that's just simply not true. Uh, China over the last 20 years has cancelled more than three and a half billion US dollars in debt and refinanced 15 billion dollars um, across uh, across Africa. Uh, right at the moment, the IMF is negotiating with uh, Ghana for a three billion. Um, dollar credit uh, facility Um, and on the table um, is as usual with these international financial institutions uh, vital social programs and infrastructure projects uh, education so in terms of Africa what we're not looking for is um, uh, is uh, um, more debt traps we want partnerships 
So we have to understand that um, that the, the explicit demonization of particular state actors is done so with the express purpose of um, drawing an iron curtain down once again mm. and bringing on the new Cold War, which is what the global North knows how to do. Mm. It's taking us to the brink and we have to find um, other voices and other channels to counter this um, explicitly harmful narrative of the global North. Roscoe, um, you talk about, you know, the money being spent to promote U.S. interest and to increase U.S. soft power. Every country does that. What makes this penetration project so special or different? The problem with this project is that it's so intimately tied with um, the U.S. State Department and the CIA. Uh, as Ajit says, the NED was set up to do overtly what the CIA could no longer do covertly, um, as it suffered tremendous reputational damage for fomenting coups and uh, regime change all over the global south. Um, so in terms of these, uh, this influencing network hiding in plain sight, um, there is a, a pattern where um, the, the the U.S. and the West can act upon Africa and the global South in ways that um, other nations just simply cannot and do not. If this was an operation, let's say, of any other nation, for example, in China, um, we would hear all about, we would hear about how scandalous it would be. But the U.S. and uh, these actors, the CIA and the NED, uh, has for years acted with impunity in terms of its um, mm -hmm. network of influence. Mm -hmm. Finally, Ajit, uh, the NED claims that it's dedicated to the growth and strengthening of democratic institutions around the world. For those who genuinely believe in democracy, how could you convince them that the NED is actually doing the right opposite across the world? Well, it comes down to this. Democracy can't be imposed from outside by foreign countries. Uh, it's, for, it's fostered by the people of a given nation. Um, and we've seen time and time again uh, that the United States, through entities like the NED, uh, repeatedly will finance violent anti-democratic forces around the world. Unfortunately, the criteria for their funding is not whether a group is particularly democratic or humanitarian. It's whether it serves their geopolitical interests in a particular country. Uh, they fund groups who oppose political forces that they don't like, uh, and those groups can exist on a spectrum of uh, across the political spectrum, unfortunately. Uh, and so if we just look country after country uh, where the NED uh, and the United States uh, financial footprint goes, uh, the track record just isn't consistent with these so-called uh, okay. democratic ideals. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. You've got the point.